0: Thrusting space science into the audio dimension,
1: this is Naked Astronomy.
2: On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month. How gamma-ray bursts, the brightest events in the universe, can tell us about galaxies that are completely invisible to modern technology. And engineering extremely large telescopes, how segmented mirrors mean the sky, or rather the bank balance,
0: is the limit. Because we've got the technology that was developed to allow segmented mirrors, so we take lots of hexagonal segments and join them together to make a bigger mirror, we're not stuck with the sort of 8-metre size, we can go bigger and bigger but we're only stuck by the amount of money we've got, basically.
2: Plus, news of Herschel's first year in service, throwing black holes out of their galaxies, and planet-eating stars. How the planet WASP-12b strayed too close to its star and is being consumed. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy.
1: Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th Anniversary Team. This is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.
2: And now we join our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. They are Carolyn Crawford, Dominic Ford, and here's Andrew Pompson.
1: Well, this month... The Herschel Space Telescope is one year old. It was launched in May of last year and this month there was a conference at ESA's Space Research and Technology Centre to announce what people have found in the first year of its operation. Now, Herschel is an infrared telescope, that means it's looking at light which isn't visible to our own eyes, but is actually at at longer wavelengths than we'd be able to see directly. But the real leap forward is that it has a a three-and-a-half-metre primary mirror. Now, that's the largest telescope that's ever been launched into space. And you can compare it with, say, the Hubble Space Telescope, which has a two and a half metre telescope. But Hubble doesn't even detect light at the kind of wavelengths that Herschel is looking at. Herschel actually goes to a 100 times longer wavelengths. And the reason we're interested in those wavelengths is that it opens up for us things in the universe which are actually really cold. Things that are cold radiate at these very long wavelengths, and so we can go after them with infrared telescopes like Herschel. Herschel's predecessor, Spitzer, only had a 90 centimetre mirror, so going to three and a half metres really allows us to get extra detail and probe objects which otherwise we just couldn't see. ESA, the European Space Agency, have been promoting some of the results that have come out after one year of Herschel's operation. And uh, just to pick up on a couple of these, for instance, people have been really interested in looking at what's known as the cosmic infrared background. So we've known since the early 90s that the universe is actually bathed in infrared light, and that's coming from a whole multitude of star-forming galaxies in the distant universe. Previously, only the brightest of those could be seen directly, and everything else was just a sort of mush, and that's why it was called the infrared background. You couldn't really tell where these infrared photons were coming from. Well, Herschel is able to really uncover the details, and it can find the much more numerous, but a lot smaller, star-forming galaxies and in particular the Herschel scientists have been looking in uh, certain regions of the sky which are covered by so-called goods fields. It's quite a small region of the sky but those fields have been covered with a whole multitude of other telescopes so we can combine the data at different wavelengths from different telescopes and that should give us new insights into what's going on in those parts of the sky. Lots of other results have come out. For instance, ESA released some information that they'd found water and organic compounds in the Orion Nebula, and that's certainly promising for the future. We can find out the details of what atoms and molecules are out there. So in the end, the science at the moment isn't absolutely groundbreaking, but certainly the technology is, and it's very promising for the future. So a very successful first year in the field, as it were. Dominic, we have also had news about a
3: supermassive black hole that's somewhat lost its way. That's right. We've known for some time that many galaxies have bright X-ray emitting sources at their centres, which we understand to be supermassive black holes, which gas is flowing onto and becoming incredibly hot. We know, for example, that the Milky Way has a black hole at its centre weighing four million times the mass of the Sun. But a paper appeared in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society this month, describing the work of Marianne Hyder, who's been working as a master's student at the University of Utrecht under the supervision of Peter Jonker, And she's compiled observations of a rather peculiar case, where a galaxy appears to contain such an X-ray source, but not at its centre, rather off to one side. And that's a really surprising thing to find, essentially because... These black holes are so incredibly massive, they have so much inertia, that they're not very manoeuvrable. And so normally the rest of the galaxy orbits around the black hole rather than the black hole orbiting around the rest of the galaxy. So what's going on to make this galaxy have this off-centre black hole? Well, it's potentially quite exciting, because current theories of how galaxies form suggest that there's a continual process whereby small galaxies are colliding with one another Emerging to form larger and larger systems. And there's the question of what happens to the black holes at the centres of a pair of galaxies when they merge. Do they come together or do you end up with a galaxy with two black holes? And you may remember back in January, Andrew talked about observations of a galaxy which seemed to have two very actively accreting black holes in it. Now, because those systems are so incredibly rare, we think the black holes must come together and merge relatively quickly in an event of phenomenal violence. So Hyder and Dronka argue that their observations of this off-centre black hole may show a case where two black holes have just merged and the collision was so violent that a burst of so-called gravitational waves were generated, which have thrown this black hole away from the centre of the galaxy. Then again, this paper does only describe observation of one galaxy, and it would of course be nice to see observations of more systems before we draw too many conclusions. Do we expect that
2: eventually this galaxy is going to look more conventional? Is it going to recover from this collision and and end up with the black hole in the centre again?
3: Yes, we would expect that the uh, rest of the material in the galaxy would reorientate itself around the black hole. Thank you, Dominic. Andrew, back to you uh, for some discoveries
2: from
1: the Chandra mission that might be pointing at some matter that we've been missing. That's right. Well, we have a very good handle on what the matter content of the universe is from missions that look at the early universe, like uh, the WMAP probe of the cosmic microwave background. And what those results tell us is that 5% only of the universe is made up of normal, visible matter, the kind of matter that you and I are made out of, the kind of matter that the stars and the sun are made out of. And then 20% is made out of dark matter, which is completely invisible. It doesn't directly interact with light. Uh, And then 75% of the universe is made out of this mysterious force known as dark energy. Now, it turns out that if you look at all the stars and the gas in the galaxies and the gas between the galaxies, and you try and add up, how much of this normal matter there really is, we don't actually find all of it. So we find that about 2.5% of the universe is made up of matter that we can see directly rather than the 5% that we should be able to see. So it will be nice to find the missing 2.5%. It's not an incredible cause for concern because in certain states, matter doesn't produce much light. So if it's in gas and the gas isn't particularly dense, it is actually very hard to see it. So it's not a pointer to something being majorly wrong, but nonetheless, it would be really nice to find the missing 2.5%. So how do you go about finding it? Well, one place to look is in the so-called warm-hot intergalactic medium, which is essentially a kind of envelope of hot gas surrounding galaxies, which, because it's very diffuse, is really hard to find. One way it does interact with light, which should allow us to find it, is that it's capable of absorbing light, and in particular absorbing X-rays. Now detections of that absorption effect have in the past often been controversial because it's a very slight effect, it's rather hard to detect and maybe if you've got some kind of minor errors in your data then you could mistake it for uh, this kind of absorption and conclude that the gas is there when really it isn't. But a study at the University of California has been going after X-rays from a particular direction on the sky in in Sculptor in fact where previously people have thought they've seen the hallmark of this kind of very diffuse gas. And what they've been able to do by combining Chandra and actually XMM-Newton X-ray data is they've been able to firm up these previous tentative detections. So it really does look like that gas is there and that goes some way to reconciling the uh, 5% normal matter that we think should be there with the 2.5% that we've been able to find previously. If
2: this... Extra matter in this diffuse gas is absorbing light as it comes through. Why are we looking in particular at x-rays? Wouldn't it absorb light across the spectrum?
1: gas certainly does absorb light across the whole spectrum. But this gas is what we call ionised. So in particular, the most abundant elements like hydrogen, for instance, aren't actually in an atomic form. They're in the form of a plasma. And once it's in the form of a plasma, it doesn't absorb in the same way. So what you're going after when you look in the x-rays is actually, in this case, oxygen. And oxygen isn't totally ionised. And that means it's able to absorb the X-ray light in a way that isn't happening in other wave bands in this particular case. Thank you, Andrew. Carolyn, if we can bring you into this now,
2: I understand that you've also seen something very exciting this month.
4: Yes, well, it's something along the lines of a star ate my planet kind of headline. It's all about a planet called WASP-12b that's orbiting quite a sun-like star about 800 or more light years distant from Earth. And it's one of these hot Jupiter-style exoplanets. It's about half as massive, again, as Jupiter. It's almost twice as large. It was discovered from a robotic search system called the Wide Area Search for Planets, that's where the WASP comes in in the name, that surveys thousands of stars, just looking for that periodic dimming of light of the star, indicating a planet's gone in between you and the star and just blocked out some of the light. When its discovery was announced a couple of years ago, it was already deemed to be unusual because just looking at the periodic dimming and the timing of it, they're finding it was orbiting its host star with a period of one Earth day, just over one Earth day, which means it has to be exceptionally close to that star. And they estimate the distance is about one fortieth of the distance between the Earth and our sun. And the problem with that kind of close orbit is it means that planet is incredibly hot to begin with it's being heated by the Sun is expected to be well over 1500 degrees C at the surface and also it's very close to the star so the gravity is tightly distorting the shape of the planet into kind of much more of an egg shape and the heat and the surface and deep within the core of the planet is just causing the the gases in the atmosphere to expand and almost like puff up and so it was a very unusual planet for those reasons But there's been some recent observations using the Hubble Space Telescope by Carol Haswell from the Open University in Britain and her colleagues where, like Andrew was just talking about looking for X-ray features of absorption, they're using a spectrograph on the Hubble Space Telescope looking for ultraviolet absorption features characteristic of certain elements. And these are signatures of where the planet's atmosphere is and they could detect them both from the star and the planet's atmosphere and the key thing is they could estimate that the planet's atmosphere has grossly swollen, it's greatly extended, and, in fact, they calculate it's extended well beyond the gravitational boundary we call the roche lobe. It's the point at which material is no longer bound to the planet, gravitationally bound, and that makes it very vulnerable to being accreted by the host star. And so what do you have? You have a very hot planet orbiting very close to its star, it's heating up, its atmosphere is extended and is gradually getting accreted by that star. This process we call, it's a stripping process, where it's pulling material off the outer layers of the star and devouring it, literally. It seems like this means that WASP-12b is doomed. We don't think it's going to last a lot longer, although, of course, this is astronomical lifetime, so you think it may yet have 10 million years left. But nonetheless, it's uh, going to one day be completely consumed by its host star.
2: So we know that these hot Jupiters have a fairly violent lifetime anyway, and now it looks like they also have a fairly violent end.
4: Well, actually, we still think that WASP-12b might be quite unusual because when you see these hot Jupiters, they're not usually that close in to the star. Even when it was discovered, the fact it had a one-day orbit instead of something more like um, a three-day orbit was was the previous minimum, marked it out as unusual. So it could be that ones that do stray too close into their sun, maybe then they're doomed and they're short-lived. And so that's an interesting spin in our understanding of planetary systems.
2: Thank you very much. Dominic, if we could just come back to you for one last story. They have finally found a site for a brand new telescope.
3: That's right. We often talk on this podcast about the exciting discoveries being made with the telescopes that astronomers have access to today. But of course, there's always a lot of work going on in the background in designing and building the telescope which astronomers will be using in a few years' time. In the case of a large telescope, that can take 20 years quite easily. Now, one large telescope which we have to look forward to using in a few years' time is the European Extremely Large Telescope, perhaps a rather unimaginative name, but often called the EELT, which will have a massive 42-metre mirror over four times bigger than anything that we currently have access to and it, it will be so big that it looks rather like a shiny, reflective radio dish. Now, the design of the EELT is almost complete, and they hope to start construction next year. So they've made a final decision on where a telescope will be sited, and the European Southern Observatory have chosen a site in Chile, close to the Chilean Andes, and in a superbly dry, high-altitude desert site, just next to the existing Very Large Telescope. It's a superb site where a number of telescopes have been built before. And come 2018, when this telescope becomes operational, at around the same time as a slightly smaller companion, the American-built 30-metre telescope for which the site has yet to be chosen, it will be a really remarkable facility, able to see the very faint light reflected from Earth-like planets around other stars, able to see the very small-scale features in regions where stars are forming out of gas, and able to look at very distant galaxies whose light has taken most of the age of the universe to travel to us to really see how the first galaxies looked in the very young universe. So this is definitely a very exciting project to keep an eye on in the next few years.
2: And we'll be hearing about the engineering challenges of building extremely large telescopes later on in the show. That was Dominic Ford, and before him, Carolyn Crawford and Andrew Ponson with a roundup of space science news. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions.
1: Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.
2: Still to come, Colin Cunningham from the UK Astronomy Technology Centre explains some of the problems encountered when building the biggest telescopes and how the solutions can also benefit medicine and clean energy technologies. But first, gamma-ray bursts are the brightest electromagnetic events in the universe, unleashing enormous amounts of energy and lighting up previously invisible parts of the sky. Professor Neil Tamver from the University of Leicester explains what we can learn from them.
5: Gamma-ray bursts are thought to be produced by massive stars which collapse at the end of their lifetime when they run out of fuel. And in the process of that collapse, they produce, it seems, an, an explosion of, of extreme violence. And so the, the exact mechanism by which that occurs isn't really uh, fully understood but nonetheless that seems to be what's happening. We see evidence that there are exploding stars which are coincident with the gamma ray burst event. So somehow or another nature knows how to create these incredibly violent ultra-high velocity explosions in the process of a very massive star collapsing, and the the star collapses to very likely a black hole. So somehow the energy being tapped of the material collapsing into that black hole, a certain proportion of it, gets diverted into uh, into this incredible explosion so it's not your run-of-the-mill supernova then No, it's a similar mechanism. Obviously, a normal core collapse supernova, as as we call them, operates in a similar way. Again, you've got a massive star, it collapses at the end of its life, and the outer parts of the star, in that case, explode off just at the same time as the inner parts are collapsing to form a neutron star. In the case of gamma-ray bursts, we obviously have something similar going on because actually the main evidence that we know that leads us to believe that it is an exploding star producing the gamma-ray burst is that we see supernova signatures underlying the gamma-ray burst, so there's certainly a connection between the two, and yet at the same time it seems to be a very special sort of supernova, a very special sort of massive star that gives rise to gamma-ray bursts. It's certainly not the -the run-of-the-mill supernovae. Are they also quite rare? They are very rare. To the limits of the sensitivity of the satellites that we use to observe gamma-ray bursts, there are only about two a day in the universe, and so... Uh, that tells you that they're fairly rare events. By comparison, supernovae are going off in the universe. If we if we had a detector that could l- survey the whole sky looking for them, they're going off at maybe once a second or something of that sort.
2: We can use these phenomenally powerful explosions to actually try and do some good science. What can we get out of a gamma-ray burst?
5: Yeah, the great thing about gamma-ray bursts from the point of view of using them to probe the universe is that they're really so bright. That's fundamentally what uh, makes them good probes. It means that, in principle, we can see gamma-ray bursts much further away than anything else we know of because they're brighter than anything else we know of. And so one can use them in various ways to try and understand the very distant universe sort of distances where we're looking way back in time billions of years back in time and where everything else that we look at whole galaxies full of stars are really faint and very hard to to determine anything about their properties and characteristics because of that but the gamma ray bursts send us so much light in just a few moments or maybe a few hours if one looks at the afterglow of the gamma ray burst that you can learn for instance about the chemistry in the galaxy that you're looking at so the chemistry may not sound so interesting it's all about heavier elements than than hydrogen and helium but the point is that those heavier elements have been cooked up in stars so by studying the chemistry in a, in a very distant galaxy, you can infer something about the previous and earlier, even earlier generations of stars, what kind of stars were existing at that time. And of course we could be looking back, right back uh, ultimately to the very earliest populations of stars, uh, objects that we call Population 3 stars, but they're a big mystery. We don't really have any real clue, any observational evidence as to what their properties were.
2: These are the theoretical stars that essentially were the very first ones
5: born in the universe, aren't they? That's right. The universe coming out of the Big Bang was made almost entirely of hydrogen and helium. And so, the earliest stars presumably were made exactly of those those two basic ingredients, and stars made of just hydrogen and helium behave very differently from stars that we're used to in the uh, in the universe around us. The small amounts of heavier elements, the carbon, the oxygen, the nitrogen in particular that one finds in in normal stars like the sun, Actually, although they're not there in any great quantity, they still play a very important role in the nuclear reactions that power the the Sun and, and all the other stars that we know of. So stars right back at the beginning of the universe, the very earliest ones to form, perhaps 100 million years or so after the Big Bang presumably behave very differently and at the moment we only have theoretical ideas we have to try and uh, understand their behavior just from our understanding of astrophysics but what we hope to do by observing particularly observing gamma ray bursts is start to understand their properties and what made them tick as it were. One of the great things about gamma-ray bursts is that once you've found the location and you've found the redshift uh, with the gamma-ray burst, the gamma-ray burst then fades away, but you then know the location of a very distant host galaxy. And so you can use any new telescope, any new facility that comes online that's intended to study galaxies in the early universe, then we can use it to study the host galaxies of the gamma-ray bursts already with a lot of information about that galaxy having been gathered from the GRB evidence.
2: Is there any significance to the fact that the radiation they're giving out is this very short wavelength gamma ray rather than, say, X-ray or visible?
5: The characteristic of gamma ray bursts is that they actually emit radiation over a wide range of wavelengths, but the most energy is put out in the, in the gamma ray region. And what that is telling us is about the kind of process that has given rise to that emission. What, what it doesn't appear to be, or at least not for the most part, is what we would call thermal emission. In other words, the kind of radiation that comes off an object like the sun that's essentially reflecting the, the temperature of the material. Instead, it seems to be telling us that the mechanism that gives rise to the radiation from gamma-ray bursts has to be involving most likely Electrons which are spiraling in magnetic fields, giving rise to what we call synchrotron radiation. So, fundamentally, that's the the picture. And it seems to have to be that way because the energy density that we're talking about with, with gamma-ray bursts, remember we're talking about something that's extremely energetic, but also it's coming from a region that's extremely compact, a newly formed black hole. So we're talking about incredible energy density. And so the normal emission processes that we might expect to take place just due to a hot gas actually won't function in the, in the same way. The photons themselves interfere with each other and collide and produce other particles and so you, you don't expect to see in those circumstances emission of that sort of regular kind and so instead it seems that this great release of energy produces first of all a very high velocity outflow, a very high velocity ejection from the star and eventually shells of plasma within the, uh, that outflow collide together and it's the collisions that give rise to these fast moving electrons which then give rise to the synchrotron radiation.
2: Neil Tamver explaining how electrons spiralling in magnetic fields account for the huge emissions of synchrotron radiation that we see in a gamma ray burst. Energetic events like a gamma-ray burst can shine like a beacon from otherwise invisible parts of the universe. But in order to make the invisible visible, we need bigger, better, stronger telescopes. But building these presents a number of engineering challenges, as Professor Colin Cunningham from the UK Astronomy Technology Centre, or UKATC, explained to me.
0: Well, we've been building telescopes for 400 years, and gradually they've got bigger and bigger, and it's usually been driven by what technology is available. So Galileo started off by using sort of spectacle lenses and a cardboard tube, and we've now gone to building sort of 8 to 10-metre mirrors, which have given us a fantastic new view of the universe. But what we've found now is because we've got the technology that was developed to allow segmented mirrors, so we take lots of hexagonal segments and join them together to make a bigger mirror, we're not stuck with the sort of 8-metre size. We can go bigger and bigger. In fact, we're only stuck by the amount of money we've got, basically. Uh, so we can build a big telescope. And at one time, we were looking at building a 100-metre diameter one. But now we've been more sensible. We're talking about building a 42-metre telescope, which is very big. Uh, and the big thing it does, it's two things. It gives you much more sensitivity, because so it collects so much more light, more light than all the other research telescopes in the world put together. And if you put that together with the fantastic spatial resolution, in other words, the detail that you can see with this telescope, you can really do very, very faint objects like the early universe, like early galaxies, understand them, actually do astrophysics and find out how they're rotating and merging and all that sort of thing. And you can also look at nearby things, or relatively nearby things, like planets around stars. Because you can do that, you can actually understand much more about them. You can look at their orbits. Potentially, you can even look at their colours and we might even find some that are similar to the Earth. So that's why we want
2: a a bigger telescope, to do all these things that we can't do now. So what are the engineering challenges with building something this big?
0: Well, it's very much bigger than we've done before, as I've just said. Um, The telescope itself is made up of 984 individual mirror segments, each of which is 1.4 metres across, so each of them is quite big. And um, you've got to keep them together in a, a nice, perfect shape as the telescope moves around the sky and as gravity varies because of that. And you've got to keep them aligned to something like 10 nanometers, which is very, very challenging. So you've got to have lots of instrumentation, lots of control systems to keep all that working properly. And that's got to work very reliably all through the nights and year after year. And on top of that, um, we've also got to deal with the atmosphere. In some ways, our life is quite difficult with ground-based telescopes. We've not only got to deal with gravity varying, but we've also got to deal with the atmosphere varying. Because if you build a space telescope, you don't have to deal with either of those things. But on the other hand, you do have to launch the thing, which is expensive and time-consuming. So what we think we can do on the ground now is by using something called adaptive optics, we can get over the limitations of the atmosphere. The atmosphere moves around and blurs the images. But we can measure the amount of blurring by looking at a natural star and measuring the wave from, from that star. Or we can put an artificial star about uh, 90 kilometres up in the sky by using a laser and we can measure the wavefront from that. If it's distorted, we measure that distortion and then we apply the opposite of that. Then we've got effectively a perfect image. This means we can get fantastic image quality, which um, you couldn't do
2: in space because you couldn't ever launch a big enough telescope. We've had segmented mirrors, these hexagonal individual mirrors, for a while. Can we just scale up the technology used there, or does the sheer size of this present a whole unique set of challenges?
0: It's pretty much the same technology. The big problem is just the scale of it, really. The current biggest telescope in the world with segmented mirrors are the Kecks and the GTC in Canary Islands. They've got 36 segments. Making one of those segments at the moment takes about six months. So it's actually the manufacturing process. If you multiply six months by 1984, you realise we're not going to be building this telescope in anybody's lifetime. So we've got to make one of these mirrors, basically one a day. So we need new technology to do that. And we've got new technology, actually, in the UK. There's a consortium of organisations working in uh, North Wales at the Optic Technium that are making prototypes for this telescope now. And uh, they've got some new technology that allows us to do it much quicker so that the telescope is possible.
2: Do we also have to find new materials to get over some of these challenges? I assume that these mirrors aren't the sorts of mirrors I have at home, a sheet of glass with a very thin film of aluminium on the back.
0: Well, strangely enough, they are, pretty much. It's better glass than you've got on your mirror in your bathroom. It's low-expansion glass. It's quite um, tricky to manufacture, but it's the same thing that people have been using for about 150 years, really. It's a glass-ceramic glass ceramic with a coating of generally silver these days as opposed to aluminium. And we've looked at new technologies, new materials like silicon carbide compounds and composites and even even, um, carbon fibre composites. And they do give you some advantages. They're usually a good deal lighter, which means the rest of the structure can become a lot lighter as well. But the general feeling is that uh, they're not really there yet. And the conventional glass ceramic coated with aluminium or silver held on a steel structure is actually the best thing to do.
2: Can we apply any of the lessons that we've learnt with this to more mundane things?
0: Uh, we certainly can, and we already are doing. Um, the adaptive optics technologies that we use to correct the images from the sky can also be used to correct images used for looking into your eye, so looking the other way. So you can use adaptive optics to actually improve the quality of a, an image of the retina and look at individual Rods and cones, uh, look at the blood vessels and actually measure blood flow in those blood vessels. So that's the only way you can do that, of course, without cutting somebody open. That could be very important in terms of diagnosis of uh, diseases like uh, diabetic retinopathy. If you go to the opposite extreme, the technology we're learning in order to make uh, mirrors at a reasonable cost and a reasonable speed, we can use that for, for laser fusion in the future. Already people are building laser fusion systems in order to get um, green energy, you know, basically reproducing what happens on the sun. There's no radioactivity, there's no carbon in- emission, and you get uh, almost an infinite supply of energy. If this works, this could save the planet.
2: And we can do this using the technology we're developing for astronomy. So that's t- pretty good, if you ask me colin cunningham explaining how technology developed for stargazing may help to see the inside of your eyes or provide better ways to generate clean electricity as well as seeing further into space This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from The Naked Scientists. If you've got any questions or comments for us, then get in touch by email to astronomy at com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions, starting with a question spotted by Andrew Pompson.
1: Well, actually, I was trawling the Naked Scientists forums, looking through a lot of the questions that have been posted on there. And one in particular caught my eye from UK Mickey, who was asking, in effect, could the universe be spinning? And if if the universe is spinning, would that affect its expansion? And the reason it it caught my eye is because it's actually closely connected to some work that I did for my thesis a few years ago. And In short, the answer is yes, the the universe could be spinning. We use Einstein's theory of general relativity to describe the way the universe behaves on large scales, and that seems to work extremely well. And... Einstein's general relativity is a set of equations and there are solutions to those equations which do describe a universe which is not only expanding, as we know the universe is, everything is getting further away from everything else, but also it's actually rotating as it expands, so everything is kind of swirling round everything else. And those solutions to Einstein's equations are part of a even more general set of solutions which are known as the Bianchi models after a mathematician Luigi Bianchi who studied geometry actually even before uh, Einstein understood the application of that to the universe. In any case if you look at these solutions where everything is simultaneously expanding and swirling about then you find that the expansion rate is affected by that rotation. Things are changed. Now Observations of our own universe, and particularly of the cosmic microwave background, can put a limit on the speed of that rotation. And there was some suggestion recently that data from NASA's WMAP, that's the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe satellite, had seen some trace that the universe really was rotating in this way. And part of my thesis was to look critically at those claims, and it actually turned out that with some more detailed calculations, they they didn't really stand up. So we haven't detected any rotation in the real universe that we live in, any overall rotation. And... Even if that detection had been correct, it was at a level where it would have had very little impact on the expansion rate of the universe. So, for instance, it couldn't have accounted for what we call today the effects of dark matter and dark energy, which I think was one of the ideas that came up on the forum, that this modified expansion rate could perhaps mimic what we think is dark matter and dark energy. Unfortunately, there's no question that rotation can't be strong enough in our own universe to do that. But it's uh, certainly an interesting set of solutions to look at nonetheless.
2: Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for picking up a question from our forum as well. That's at thenakedscientist.com slash forum, where we've also seen quite a lot of discussion of a question I'm going to put to you, Dominic. This is from Brent Key. He asks, how long would it take for a black hole that was accidentally created on Earth, for
3: example, to swallow the sun? Well, black holes, of course, are objects which are usually formed at the ends of the lives of massive stars like Betelgeuse, which weigh tens of times the mass of the sun. And they're formed whenever matter becomes so heavily compressed together that no force, like, for example, gas pressure, can overcome the gravitational attraction of the object for itself. And so it undergoes a catastrophic collapse down to a single point. But even though black holes are fundamentally point-like, you can talk about them having a finite size in the form of the event horizon, which is how close you can get to the black hole before not even light travelling at the speed of light can escape the black hole's gravity. Now, the event horizons of black holes are incredibly small, and the hole must be incredibly massive for the horizon to be even the size of an atom. To be a bit more precise about that, a black hole has to weigh a billion, billion kilograms for the event horizon to be the size of the spacing between atoms in a solid. And if you made a black hole the mass of the Earth, its event horizon would be only one centimetre across. So low-mass black holes have a lot of problems. They find it hard to eat much mass just because they're so small. And there's a process called Hawking radiation by which they continually lose mass. And if they lose mass faster than they accrete mass, then the black hole will just evaporate and disappear. So if you had a black hole weighing 10 tonnes, say, that's the mass of a double-decker bus, it would evaporate within a fraction of a second of forming. So I know there has been speculation about black holes being formed in particle accelerators, but any holes that were formed by those experiments would pose no threat at all, because they would evaporate almost immediately. But if you put all that aside, and we suppose for a moment that somehow the Earth has been eaten by a black hole, how long would it take for that black hole to swallow the sun? Well, the only force which acts between the planets in the solar system is gravity. And so you don't get too close to it, the gravitational field around a black hole is the same as the gravitational field around a planet. And so the solar system could quite happily carry on with a black hole in the place of the Earth, and nothing would change.
2: Well, that's not at all the answer that I would have expected. I picture black holes as so massive and so destructive, and the fact that nothing can escape, I would have thought it would destroy the entire solar system in, in a matter of minutes.
4: And conversely, if the sun were to turn into a black hole, which, as Dominic was keen to stress, it's certainly not going to do because it's not not a big enough star, we would be relatively unaffected out here. I mean, yes, we wouldn't get much heat or light anymore, but we would be so far away, all we'd register is there's a certain mass at a certain distance, we would respond to that gravitation and uh, it wouldn't endanger us particularly.
2: So my idea of a black hole sucking everything in like water down a plug hole is obviously wrong. But we have a great question here for you, Carolyn, from Shablon Davadi. And he points out that the Milky Way is all around us and there are millions and millions of stars. But when we look out on a really clear night, we can see it as a line instead of just being totally bathed in it. Why is that?
4: Well, all these stars you see in the night sky do belong to the Milky Way, unless you're lucky enough to be in the southern hemisphere when you can perhaps see the Magellanic Clouds, the two nearest galaxies. It's just that there's a concentration of them into this band across the sky that was originally identified as our galaxy. And we live in a spiral galaxy. And when you see pictures of spiral galaxies in books, they usually face on almost, they look circular systems, basically shaped like a giant frisbee it's a circular disc and the reasons you see these pictures in books a is because it's prettier and also it's much easier for astronomers to study the contents of a spiral galaxy that's face on to you sometimes we see spiral galaxies out there and sometimes you see these images on the web or in books where they're not face on to you but they're edge on so like the frisbee they're presenting a not a disc shape circular disc shape but just a straight line or a band when you see them like that, do you get the idea that the spiral galaxy is shaped much more like... The common analogy is two fried eggs stuck back to back. You've got the double egg yolk in the middle, which forms like a compact sphere ball of stars. And then you've got the egg whites form a large disk to either side. Now, we live in that disk in our own spiral galaxy, about halfway out from the centre to the edge of the galaxy... Therefore, when we look at our spiral galaxy, we're seeing it from that vantage point and we're seeing our spiral galaxy edge on and so it appears like that band, like the frisbee edge on.
2: So because we're in the astronomical albumen, we see it as a a nice thin band instead of being totally buried in it. Andrew, thinking of the way that we look at space, we've had a question from Nick Mulder. And I think he's thinking about the perspective from the restaurant at the end of the universe. He says that there are different theories as to the ultimate fate of the universe, a heat death or a big crunch, for example. And assuming that we could see what's going on, would we need to be tuned into different wavelengths in order to see what's happening?
1: Yeah, well, let's take it one step at a time. So space is currently expanding. And what that means is that when we look out particularly distant galaxies, we see them redshifted. And one way you can think about that redshift effect is that light comes in different colours. Those different colours correspond to different wavelengths. And in particular, longer wavelengths are redder than shorter wavelengths. So if some light leaves a galaxy and it's got a short wavelength, so that makes it quite blue, then as it travels through the universe, the space it's traveling through is actually expanding so the wavelength actually gets stretched by that action and the light becomes redder than it was when it was emitted so that's what we call the redshift effect that's what's going on in the expanding universe today now there are two basic possibilities for what might happen in the future The first is that the universe carries on expanding forever and in fact if our measurements of dark energy prove correct that seems to be what is going to happen, it's going to expand forever and not only expand forever but do so at an ever accelerating rate. But let's just look at the other possibility, even though we now don't think this is the case. It's a it's a consistent model, nonetheless, that gravity could have been strong enough to make the whole universe collapse back in on itself, to reverse the expansion, to make all the galaxies fly back together. Now, this is happening, of course, on, on billions of year timescales, so you don't expect to see uh, anything changing in the same way that Dominic was explaining last month. But let's suppose it does collapse back in. Well, what happens Well, shortly after the current expansion actually reverses and things start to collapse back in, nearby galaxies start to appear blue-shifted. It's exactly the opposite effect, that as the light travels through the universe towards us, the space is actually compacting and so the wavelength gets shorter and the light appears bluer further away galaxies at first remain redshifted because for most of the time that the light's been traveling through the universe towards us the universe was actually expanding and only recently did it start contracting so further away galaxies stay redshifted for a while but if you wait for long enough then they begin to look blue shifted and more and more of the universe blue shifts until eventually you see everything collapsing in on you and uh, that's the end So let's go back to what we believe is the more realistic scenario, which is that the universe carries on expanding forever at an accelerating rate. But if the expansion of the universe is accelerating, if you watch any particular object, then if you watch it for long enough, the redshift effect between you and that object becomes more and more pronounced. So if you watch a given object for billions and billions of years, you see it get redder and redder, and in fact you also see it get fainter and fainter, until one day you can't see that object at all anymore. And that's because the space in between us and that object has begun to expand so quickly that the light is actually unable to ever get through that distance because however far it manages to travel, the amount of space has actually increased by more. So objects actually start to disappear from the universe if this scenario is correct. We call that effect a shrinking horizon. We actually can see less and less far in our own universe. So actually the view from the restaurant at the end of
2: the universe might not be all that exciting It could all. be nothing at all. <laughs> uh, Dominic, we've got another question here from Lut von Tonder, and he wants to know why is it that some constellations such as the Southern Cross, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, are actually
3: visible all year round while other ones come and go? We tend to think of constellations as being patterns of stars in the sky but you can also think of them as representing directions in space. Um, Perhaps a good analogy is that you're sitting on a fairground ride and you're spinning round and round and you lose sense of what direction you're facing. But perhaps you know that there's a big tree on the horizon in the east. And so you know if you look out and you see a big tree that you must be facing east. The sky is rather similar, except the fairground ride is the Earth, which is spinning round on its axis once a day and going round the sun once a year. And instead of looking at seeing a big tree, what you see, uh, for example, the patterns of stars in the constellation of Orion, which are a thousand light years away, and so they always appear in more or less the same direction. Now, if you imagine the Sun at the centre of this pattern of of stars that we see, and you imagine the Earth's orbit as being a bit like a dinner plate, with the Sun at the middle and the Earth going round the edge of the plate, then as the Earth goes round the plate, the Sun appears to trace a circle, around the sky, coming back to where it started after 12 months. And if a constellation lies close to that line that the sun traces around the sky, then at one part of the year, it's very hard to see. For example, you'd be very hard-pressed to see the constellation of Orion at the moment, because in the month of May, the sun is in the constellation of Taurus, just next door, and so Orion is very close to the sun. But if you take constellations like, say, Ursa Major in the north or the Southern Cross in the south, those are in the directions, if you like, up and down, out of a dinner plate, and the sun never ventures close to those directions, and so you can see them all the year round.
2: Thank you, Dominic. And thinking of things spinning around, Carolyn, one last question for you. This is from Charlie in Washington, and he asks, why don't all galaxies spin in the same direction?
4: Again, a very interesting question. I mean, this relates to spiral galaxies alone, so not all galaxies. Only spiral galaxies are spinning. Again, remember, we tend to see images of galaxies and we tend to forget they're quite dynamic, objects They're not stationary. Sparrow galaxies move, and in particular, they spin like giant Catherine wheels. And all the stars in the disk of the galaxy, including, say, our sun, are rotating around the centre. So, for example, we're following our sun and the neighbouring stars at speeds of about 200 kilometres per second, and it takes us about 240 million years to go once around the galactic centre. So this is actually very dynamic systems. And you can tell which way a galaxy is spinning just by looking at it, because the the spiral arms of gas and dust and stars trail behind the galaxy as it turns. But obviously, if you look at any individual galaxy and you're trying to tell which way it's spinning, it's going to depend on your perspective. What can be clockwise viewed from one direction will be seen as anticlockwise viewed from the opposite direction. And so you have to beg the question is why would you expect all galaxies to spin in the same direction in the first place? Galaxies form for the gravitational collapse of large clouds of hot gas. And if this original cloud had even the slightest rotation to begin with, that becomes increased as the cloud collapses down to form stars. You know, think of an ice skater spinning ever faster as they draw their arms in. This is known as the conservation of angular momentum. If you think of all these individual clouds of hot gas that collapse to form galaxies, there's no reason necessarily why they should all have been started off with the same slight rotational spin. And scientists think if you average out a large enough part of the universe, there should be no preferred directions or orientations within this cosmos, and so you should have random spins of galaxies. And this has been tested on about 37,000 nearby galaxies using volunteers on the Galaxy Zoo project. And... What was being published from that is that near enough, there are equal numbers spinning clockwise and anticlockwise. However, it's not quite that simple. There is another aspect to this, though. It is possible that some galaxies, if you average them out in large directions, may all spin in preferred directions, and it's to do with the way that galaxies evolve and change through the history of the universe. And there are arguments to say that if they are merging and growing together in this way, this is going to affect their observational properties such as the way that they rotate. And so it could be that on these even larger scales, sampling the way that galaxies rotate, maybe that will give us clues about the way in which they formed. So at the minute it looks like it's random, but we've yet to do a more stringent test on larger scales.
1: And of course the reason that we don't believe there are any preferred directions or spins in the universe comes back to this first question that actually directly from the cosmic microwave background you can test this and there doesn't seem to be much room for there to be any overall rotation.
2: That was Andrew Ponson, Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford discussing your space science questions. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, then get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But that's all we have for this Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and questions. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientist, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council.